You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. For some years, my family collected Safeway Monopoly game pieces, thinking this is the year. This is it. We're finally going to get that vacation. And every year we come up empty, and we're always missing that one piece. You know what I mean? Where where is that piece? So this year, when my wife and daughters came home with uh, bags of grocery and a handful of Monopoly game pieces, I thought, why bother? I know how this movie ends. I've been down this road before, and I'm not going to set myself up for failure. And then one day, my family explodes into jubilation of biblical proportion. (laughs) And in the screaming and the crying and the high-fiving, I make out the words, we won, we won. And I'm like, are you serious? I can't tell you how quickly I became my grandmother. I started talking about Chinese zodiac signs. And how my oldest kid, Lydia, is not just a pig, but she's the golden pig. A sign of wealth and fortune, and that I always believed that Lydia could do it. Well, it turns out, I'm not gonna say who, but one of my kids made a mistake. And we didn't win. (laughs) Talk about an emotional roller coaster ride. We went from jubilation to who can't match numbers. (laughs) Oh, poor Daniel. Poor Daniel. Happiness is when you get the acceptance letter, happiness is when you get the promotion. Happiness is when she agrees to a second date. Happiness is when your husband brings you flowers. And happiness is when your kids do their chores. Happiness is a state of emotion dictated by external circumstance. But biblical joy is different. It shares many of the attributes But it's different in that it is not dictated by external circumstance. You see, biblical joy is permanent in that it is anchored in the finished work of Jesus. Do you know this joy? Or are you chasing the next best thing? Because if you don't know this joy, you're going to be tossed back and forth. And you're going to be exhausted. So let's talk about joy, but before we do, let's first talk about grief, because we live in a world filled with both, and if we were to take stock of our lives, we will quickly realize that grief is more common than joy. So how do we then actually live into this biblical joy where we experience the presence of Christ 
and really cultivate this biblical joy so that we have our eyes on the prize and experience life differently than as if we didn't have biblical joy. So let's dive in. First, grief. Christian faith believes that humanity's core problem is relational. Not only the relationship between us, but certainly our relationship with God. And it happened when Adam and Eve questioned God's character and usurped his authority. And grief is a bitter fruit of estrangement from God. And grief casts a long shadow and strangles life from us. Grief is a disappointment of an unrealized dream. A rejection from school being passed over a promotion. Grief is the pain of broken relationships, whether you're stuck in a difficult marriage or longing for marriage, or your child decides to walk away from their faith altogether. Grief is losing a loved one to cancer or mental illness. You see, all of these things have death's signature on them. And ever since Eden, humanity's remedy for grief has been to substitute pleasure with joy. It's our effort to numb the pain with another drink or to distract ourselves with another show on Netflix so that we might feel a bit alive. Something, anything, to avoid the nagging longing for joy that sits uneasy inside of us. And you all know that pursuit of joy is not only pursuit of pleasure, I'm sorry, is exhausting. It really is. Because there's no way that we can silence the longing for joy in our hearts, not certainly with these cheap substitutes in this world. But Jesus offers a different remedy, a better solution. And if you're in Christ, grief is not your permanent address. The good news of Christian faith states that Christ has not left us. He has done something about the broken relationship by coming to us to offer peace, shalom, and reconciliation to bring us back home. As he often does in the Gospel of John, Apostle John tucks away the Gospel in the two bookend verses of a text. Follow along. In verse 16, he says, You will see me no more. And we hear the echoes of judgment here The words that were spoken after Adam and Eve sinned when they were exiled from Eden because of their sin. And again in verse 16, Jesus says, but you will see me. Estrangement is not the end of the story. Jesus promises that we will see him again and speaks the peace that we will share between God and us. But how? How is he going to do this? Verse 33 I have overcome the world. These words are powerful in that Jesus spoke these words before his suffering. He doesn't say, I have overcome the world after the resurrection. He actually stares death right in the face and he says, I have overcome the world. And this is the gospel that we believe. That Jesus saw our situation and he did not say, well, good luck, try harder, and maybe you will make it. But rather he says, I know that we've been separated, but you will see me because I will 
come to you, and I will bear the price of the estrangement between you and God. So let's take a look at a closer look at these words. Verse 16, Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. The disciples were stuck on this phrase, a little while. And in verse 18, they wonder out loud, what does he mean by little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Sounds a lot like Presbyterians, right? They then form a search committee. No, they don't. Things were always getting lost in translation between Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus then begins to explain three things, beginning with verse 19. First, he speaks of their separation. He said, you will see me no more. And by this, he refers to his death. The second person of the Trinity exposed himself fully to God's judgment and drank the cup of God's wrath. And on the cross, he bore the weight of sin and faced the horror of death and experienced firsthand the grief of estrangement from God. You see, Christian faith is unique in that our God not only knows suffering from a distance, but he entered into it. He entered this space where you and I inhabit away from the Lord, and he came into it willingly so that he could identify with us to become one of us and to offer a better way, a better solution as he offered his life on our behalf. But this separation, Jesus says, will be temporary. And then after a little while, you will see me, he says. You see, death does not get the final say. Sin will not reign forever. And on the cross, Jesus defanged death and he rendered sin ineffectual. And that's why Jesus was laid in a borrowed tomb because he wasn't planning to stay very long. You see, Jesus' enemies thought his death was permanent, that they won and they celebrated their victory. But if you learn anything from the Auburn, Virginia, NCAA Final Four game, it's this. Don't celebrate prematurely. Too soon? Too soon? Let me explain for those of you who didn't watch the game. You see, Auburn was up by two with, with less than two seconds left in the game. And after Kyle, guys, he missed the three-pointer, Auburn fans went crazy. They thought they won. The campus was lit. The bandwagon was fuller than ever, but the game wasn't over. You see, Auburn fans didn't hear the whistle, and Kyle Guy made all three free throws, and the rest is history. You see, after sin and death unleashed their fury, they thought they won. But God blew the whistle, you see, and called foul on the play, because, listen now, death is the penalty of sin. But Jesus was without sin, so death had no claim on Jesus. It had to surrender Jesus. It had to give him up. And you know, the rest, as they say, is history. And that's why we will see him again. Yeah. Yeah. 
this Palm Sunday is a celebration of Jesus riding into Jerusalem for the final time before his suffering, death, and resurrection. And it is a metaphor for Jesus riding into our hearts, declaring peace to our troubled hearts. He comes to bring us home. If grief is the bitter fruit of estrangement from God, then joy is a fruit of reconciliation with God. And just as the pain of childbirth is eclipsed by joy, so I've been told at least four times, <laughs> Jesus says our grief, all the things that strangle life out of us, will be overshadowed by joy. Grief is not the end of our story. It is not where we dwell permanently because we have something better. Even here on this side of eternity that gives us hope and life so that as we anticipate the things to come, that we can taste and live into the glorious joy that he offers us so that we as God's people, as we declare the gospel, that we can do more than just believe, but that we can demonstrate the goodness of our Savior and allow the watching world to get a glimpse of what it can be even for them. Now, it's hard to talk about joy without talking about Marie Kondo. You guys know who this lady is? Marie Kondo is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. I got problems with that title, man. I'm like, are you serious? Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up? Like Pastor Russ, I got four kids, man. There's no life-changing nothing with tidiness, okay? I remember reading that title thinking, okay, I don't think she met my kids. Now, her mission, she goes on to say, is to spark joy in the world through tidying. Again, she hasn't met my kids. If anything, uh, if anything doesn't bring joy, then she recommends you thank the item for the service and toss or donate it. I don't think she's a parent. <laughs> you see, biblical joy has nothing to do with how clean and how tidy your home is. Amen? Amen. Parents, let me hear it. Amen? Amen? You know how many old, dirty socks I got tucked away under my couch? <laughs> I dare not look. I dare not look. And we got stuff sitting on our stairway for days, for weeks sometimes, in hopes that our children would take them and put them in their dirty laundry basket. It has never happened. If anything, I'm tempted to get rid of No, I can't get rid of my kids. In order for us to understand biblical joy, we have to start with the story of Exodus. So let's go back. I know you guys studied the book of Exodus, so we're not going to linger too long. But for those of us who weren't here when Russ exposited that great book, you know that Israel lived under Pharaoh's oppression for 400 years. God heard their cry and remembered his covenant, so beautiful and rich. And he performed the 10 plagues or 10 signs and delivered Israel from Egypt. And Exodus, that whole event, changed everything. It changed everything. It was the game changer for God's people. And the story of Exodus is a paradigm for Christological joy that we read about and see in the New Testament. Yeah. 
But even as great as the story of Exodus is, it is nothing but a mere shadow of the real thing in Jesus. Because God in Christ acts on behalf of his people. That he would come and take on flesh to dwell among us. That he will suffer and die on the cross and on the third day rise again from the dead. And that is a game changer for God's people. If we really understand the breadth and the depth of the gospel, we understand that nothing is the same for us. We have a new identity as sons and daughters of God. We are no longer defined by our past mistakes or current struggle or sin, but we're defined by the finished work of Jesus. We are declared perfectly righteous. Beloved, accepted, celebrated by our Father. And as children, we have full access to God who delights in giving good gifts to us. And that's what we read about. We can now go directly to the Father in the name of Jesus to present our requests. And our good God would not give us a stone when we ask for bread. Or scorpion when we ask for fish. No, he even knows the things that we should be asking for. And he's already at work. Now, we don't always know how. We don't always see the ways that God is doing this. But that is the promise that he has given to us. The confidence we have as the children of God. And we enjoy new freedom from the power of sin. We were slaves to sin, but now in Christ, we can say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. And we can actually grow into our identity as Christ's followers. That is a beautiful thing. What a powerful witness that is as we, as God's community, grow into that identity. And the world sees not only what we say, but they see our life. That is the most powerful form of evangelism, us coming together to love one another, just as we have been loved by our Father. And we live with the promise that the best is yet to come. Do you believe this? Let me ask, do you believe this, people? The best is yet to come, that when Jesus returns, he will make all things new. It's hard when life is so comfortable to believe that the best is yet to come. Because we think the best is here, it's now, but Jesus says, you ain't seen nothing yet. If you turn to your bank account and you say, the best is here, Jesus says, really? That's the best your life's going to get? If we turn to a circle of friends and say, the best is here now, Jesus says, there's better fellowship, more intimacy awaiting you. You ain't seen nothing yet. And our joy is fixed on these truths, these unchanging gospel truths. And if we could, by faith, attach ourselves to the things that we just talked about, our life here on this side of of heaven would never be the same again. But here's the thing. Joy doesn't happen automatically. It's a virtue. Like love. It's something we need to practice and grow into. You don't simply wish that you become more loving. No, you practice. And it's a messy process. Sometimes you are patient with your spouse. Sometimes you're not patient with your spouse. 
Sometimes you keep no record of wrong with your children, but then sometimes you pull out that list. I mean, it's in, the, it's in your back pocket, you know what I'm saying? You know exactly what your children have done for the last six years. It's a virtue, and we need to cultivate it through the hard work of, listen now, of preaching the gospel to ourselves and wrestling our unbelief in prayer. This is how we're going to attach ourselves to the truths that Jesus speaks to us. And if we can come to believe in the promise that has been spoken to us, that the best is yet to come, and it has been guaranteed and sealed by the coming of the Spirit in our hearts, we can then begin to live into what awaits us even here. But I get it. We live in the tension of already and not yet. Meaning these promises are true, but so often we don't live like they are true. For now, joy and grief coexist, but they don't coexist as equals. You see, joy overwhelms our grief. Because if we can preach the gospel to our hearts and believe it, we can say to ourselves, we have something better. We have something better. It's like, you know, when, when the downtown office staff, we go out to eat together and people are eating salad. <laughs> and they're eating kale, beets, and all kinds of other things that touch dirt. I can say to them, look, look, I, I'm, I'm going to pass. Because I got something better awaiting for me at home. It's called bacon. That's the real stuff. That salad got nothing on me. You know what I'm saying? That salad got nothing on me. And even if I'm hungry at the moment, I'm happy to skip that salad. Because I know that when I get home, bacon is waiting for me. You realize, people, that what the world offers, for, if you're like me, okay, what the world offers is just a piece of lettuce. It's all right, but it ain't all that. You got something much better. You got Jesus. You got the Spirit of God living in you. We have something so much and we don't have to wait until that day when he returns. No, today can be that day you live into that joy. C.S. Lewis is right. Now, for those of you who don't know who C.S. Lewis is, he's the fourth person of the Trinity. <laughs> C.S. Lewis is, no, he's not. He's not, okay? Just, I don't want to get defrocked. Okay? C.S. Lewis is right when he said, all joy reminds it is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. You see, C.S. Lewis understands better than me that joy is not found in what I have. Because I can look at my bank account and I'll get depressed real quick. I can look at my kids and I wonder why did I have four of them. But when I look to the promises spoken in the word, the promise of things to come, 
joy begins to bubble up, you see. And even in the midst of unrealized dreams and broken relationships, I can say, I have something better. And I can live into the reality that's portrayed in the word and experience deep and abiding joy because Christ is better and he offers himself to me. You see, even in the face of death, you and I can know joy because in Christ we are promised something better. Even if your situation doesn't change and you feel the grip of grief, you can experience powerful, life-giving joy in Christ even now. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.